Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name is Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to reveal the five little things from their life that they would be happy to see preserved in a time capsule. Well, actually, they pick four things they want to preserve because they treasure them, but they also have to pick one thing they would like to banish from their life, something they'd be happy to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the presenter, broadcaster and comedy writer Clive Anderson. Winner of the British Comedy Award in 1991, Clive began his success during his 15-year law career with stand-up comedy and script writing, before rising to fame as the host of Whose Line Is It Anyway on radio and then television. Clive went on to front 10 series of his own show, Clive Anderson Talks Back on Channel 4, and four series of Clive Anderson All Talk on BBC One. He's made many guest appearances on shows such as Have I Got News For You, QI, Mock The Week and The Unbelievable Truth. Clive has been the unflappable host of live events and award ceremonies for BAFTA, the London Evening Standard Film Awards, the Chortle Awards and the Olivier's. In recent years, he's presented The Big Read and Maestro on BBC Two. Clive hosted Whose Line Is It Anyway live at the Adelphi Theatre in London in 2015. Due to popular demand, the sold-out show returned to the London Palladium in 2016 and again to the Royal Albert Hall in December 2018 to celebrate its 30th birthday. Clive took his first solo show, Me, Macbeth and I, to the Edinburgh Fringe in 2019 to critical acclaim and a sold-out run. And a debut tour across the UK is planned when it's possible. Clive continues to present loose ends and unreliable evidence for BBC Radio 4, but he's rarely the interviewee, as he is now. I hope you enjoy it. So, Clive, uh, thank you so much for being part of my time capsule, my podcast, and it's um, it, you must be fed up with podcasts. I've you get done one or two all the time, and, uh, but this is the is the way forward, apparently. I, I suppose so. But not only are you on them, but then you have to interview people about them every week. <laughs> yes. Well, I do uh, loose ends on Radio Four, and that's 
um, for good good reason or bad, is generally interviewing people with something out. And it's a film, mm. a book, a TV series, a play on in the West End or, or elsewhere uh-huh. in the country. And of course, as you know, as an actor, plays have all come to an end. So there's nobody yes. with new play productions. There's one or two films still coming up, but they're going to dry up soon. Even yeah. books, people don't necessarily want to publish. But the, thus, you know, restless people at home say, oh, I know, I'll do a podcast. <laughs> yeah. So I've got quite a few. Twiggy's got a podcast. I interviewed her. <laughs> so it's tea with Twiggy. So oh, it was as Twiggy. though they were having a meeting up, yes. having a cup of tea. And- well, that's sort of what we're doing. Yes, we can't <laughs> pretend we don't know each other. No, quite. No, we're sort of having tea with friends. Mm. But in fact, we're talking about five things that you would like to put into a time capsule yeah. from your life. Mm. Um, so... Um, so what's your first item? Well, I thought I'd set off, first of all, it's a football. Uh, it's, a, it's a particular football. Yeah. It was one given to me by my grandparents uh, mm. when I was a little boy. I can't say exactly the age that I would have been, but very, very young. Um, when people have often asked me over the years, what's your first memory? I've always replied, um, it's going on a sleeper train to Scotland to see my grandparents. I spent a lot of time going to Scotland when I was young, yeah. uh, holidays, but also to see my grandparents, and then they died, so it was a sort of succession of things. Mm. And um, But I'm, I've now begun to doubt my own memory, because I don't know why we would ever have gone on a sleeper. <laughs> we always had a car, a rather grotty old car, which trudged up the road uh, and took ages and ages to get there. I don't know why we would ever have gone on a, on a sleeper, and I didn't really check this out with my own parents before they died. I've been sort of rabbiting on about this. But definitely getting this football is uh, one of my first uh, memories, and I can, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you remember, what you don't remember. So mm. I can remember getting the football, and it was a proper football made out of leather, and in, I don't know how interested you are in football mike but well i am quite interested okay. yes and you know i'm a sort of about the same age as you so i sort of know the football you're talking about the sort of dubbin football yes it's a leather football and inside it was a sort of bladder i don't think it was made out of a pig's bladder anymore maybe sort of just <laughs> rubber and i was fascinated by the inner workings of this and i can remember getting the football and i can remember i could take you now to the bedroom that it was over christmas so i was sleeping yeah. in my parents bedroom with my sister rather than in my ordinary tiny little bedroom because we had lots of family there Anyway, this football, I can remember getting it. I can't really remember playing football beforehand, but I must have been playing football beforehand to have been so excited by it. And yeah. I can't remember ever using it because um, we used to play in the park. I used to wander off when I was from quite a young age. And it rather depended what sort of ball you had at any given time. Normally it was a plasticky thing called a Frido or mm. a Frido Wembley, which you could kick and it went for miles, or sometimes you had a proper leather ball. So he must have used it for that. And I <laughs> thought lodged in my memory must have been the time when I lost it or it burst or the first time I played with it. But it's, it all links up with my memory. Football has been part of my life. And, and as I say, I used to go to Scotland a lot to see these, uh, my, my grandparents. Were you ever shipped off to your grandparents? Did you go off to your grandparents on your own ever? No, but I spent quite a lot of time. Uh, my grandfather came to stay with us when my grandmother was ill or I broke a leg or something. So mm. that was an early memory. Then we went, to, we'd go and see them few times. Uh, they had a smallish property, smallish sort of flat really, in the Isle of Bute which is mm. in the Firth of Clyde, a little village out of the way there and they'd moved there 
sometime before from a bigger house in Glasgow, quite a big house in Glasgow, I think. And as far as I understand it from my parents, they'd just taken everything they ever owned from that house <laughs> in huge removal vans and then crammed it into this factory. It was full of interesting stuff because my grandfather had been to South America, which is quite exotic in those days, and he had things on the wall, you know, made out of old snakes and <laughs> crocodiles and alligators. And he had loads and loads of clocks as well. But when uh, he died and then my grandmother died, my parents didn't know what to do with any of this stuff no. because it was <laughs> impossible to sort of... Because uh, a lot of people go and live on islands like that and they retire. So it's loads and loads of this stuff becomes available. But I was a bit cross. I wanted to take everything... You know, not take everything, but, you know, to, to keep all these keep exciting all, yeah. things. The only thing I got, really, was a few books, because he was a publisher, so he had lots and lots of books. I managed to hang on to a few of those, and a clock, um, yes. which one of his many clocks I held on to, and I've still got. You've still got it? I've still got it, yeah. What sort of clock is it? Is it sort, oh, of, it a... sort of spins round on a... I don't know why I'm indicating this is a podcast, but I'm indicating to you. <laughs> like, it, it twirls round, and it... Uh, it's every now and then it needs repairing. Uh, he did have a sort of grandfather clock, which I know we left there because it was just too big to move, and mm. uh, cuckoo clocks and all sorts of things. I found this all very fascinating. Yeah, of course. My parents, I think, regarded it as a load of clutter that yeah. uh, they they weren't interested in. In the slightest. well, I think maybe that's often the way. In fact, that when you go to clear out your parents' stuff, mm. you've known it all your life and it's been there, and and you regard it all as rather worthless. Yes. One or two things you might want to keep because. So you think they're precious, but not many things. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you another, this is slightly off the subject of this football, but my yeah. father was in the RAF during the war mm. and uh, he also did some stuff with sort of cadet forces afterwards. So he had, when he died um, a few years ago now, still got his RAF uniform uh, hanging in his cupboard. Yeah. So I, along with a load of other stuff, I had that from him and I looked at it and I thought, well, am I going to keep this RAF uniform? I have no actual use for it. And I thought, oh, no, there's no point in me hanging on to this. I've got loads of stuff. So I gave it away to a a charity shop. And uh, about a week later, I was appearing on a show. I had only a short-lived show on ITV, uh, fronted by Paul Merton, um, called... Oh, oh no, I can't even remember the name of the show now. It was an (laughs) improvisation show. The idea is you turned up and you you had no notification of what you were going to do. Uh, but you were suddenly thrust into a scene. So Paul Merton introduced it, and there were some actors ready to act out the scene with you. Mm. And I was to play an RAF officer, and I was given an RAF outfit to wear. Um, For all I know, it was his RAF outfit, because they might have, the way these TV things work, they might have gone to the charity shop and bought it a uh, a week before, but perhaps that (laughs) was a bit unlikely. But I thought, this is ridiculous. There must be some karma or something telling me that I maybe should or should not have disposed of this. And I couldn't even play it like... Like him, uh, he was Scottish and uh, had a you know reasonably strong Scottish accent. But that's not what you want when you're playing, you know, a typical RAF officer. You no. had to be you know, jolly chocks away kind of thing, which is how I yeah, did yeah. Uh, play it. Well, you're about the same size. Would it have fitted you? Um, fairly similar. Yes, I, I've, I'd been doing a show talking about his kilt, which I inherited, mm. and I could never quite grasp that he could have worn the kilt that he had hanging his. Cor- uh, but I used to wear it for being on stage and Burns Nights and things. And uh, and then a few years went by when I didn't wear it and I had to dig it out again for a, uh, a Burns Nights supper that I was going to go and address and I mm. couldn't get into it. And so no. I had grown from... He and I, both are very, very skinny boys yeah. and young men, uh, but in the sort of, I don't know, few years maybe, 10 years at most, probably as a result of getting married or something, I acquired his... 
I still have his uh, middle-aged shape. The only way to fit into a a proper uniform uh, is to buy one from a a general or a major or someone someone who would have been slightly elderly if you get to our age, because, in fact, uh, all uniforms are worn by young men. Yes. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's no good. Uh, anyway, they got me a right, uh, right-size uniform for the, for the TV programme. Yeah. So you don't actually remember playing football then with this football not, at not all? Particularly, not particularly that football. What I do remember is that and football has been, so I think, suitable for this time capsule. I've played football, I've watched football. You know, I play football every week. Badly and slowly, and uh, I used to play it as a kid. Um, I thought you were a midfield general. Isn't that what they call it? <laughs> I'm not. I'm it not really. You stand in the middle and don't move. <laughs> I I um, I tend to don't move around very much. I tend to stand near the goal, a sort of goal hangery position, or sometimes I hang around the defence. But I'm. Uh, you, you get to be so slow when you get beyond the years properly playing that uh, so trying to dribble past somebody is no longer possible. Dribbling past somebody involves just taking the ball to them and giving it to them <laughs> or, and trying to tackle somebody. I find, you know, I put, do a perfect tackle in just just half a second after they've left. You know? Yes. So, so it may, look, may or may not look good. It certainly doesn't get in the way of the attacker. You don't play a full pitch still, do you? No, we play indoors in yeah. um well in, in, on an indoor pitch, so it's a bit bigger than five aside. But uh, uh, we we do once a year play on a full size pitch in Italy. We have a, a tour. We go to Italy and play two matches in the course of the weekend, and that is uh, is it Angus's club, Angus Eden's club. Angus plays in it as well. Yes, it's uh, yes. We're, we're a sort of group of people. Which, except when we go to Italy, when we play against. Uh, an elderly-ish uh, village side. Yes. Um, we just play amongst ourselves, so we just balance out two teams. Remind me of the name. Is it the Strollers? Strollers, that's right. The yeah. Strollers. Yeah. People are always arguing that I'm a member of the Strollers because I did once play. Oh, if you on once that... played, then you are technically a Stroller. Once you've played oh. as a Stroller, you're a, you, you, you are still a Stroller. But this would have been in about 1985. <laughs> well, I would, yes. I think that's roughly when we started. And right. we're still going, I was going to say we're going strong. We're going weak <laughs> in my case. But uh, no, oh, you're definitely a stroller. I don't know what that entitled. You could probably come to the Christmas dinner if you wanted to. You wow, know. I might well do. Yes. I've always been rather envious, actually. Then maybe maybe I will. I'm going to come. I'm going to stroll in as if I have the right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's only really uh, for useful for doing, you know, little quiz questions with each other which stroller has got a knighthood or which stroller has been in prison you know those sort of uh, those sort of questions and there's usually somebody we can come up with who's uh, uh, what would your unique quality be um which which stroller has a podcast involving a time capsule yes which stroller hasn't played since 1985 i think would be the question (laughs) (laughs) every single time i try to play football i just pull muscles left right and center it's no good so oh, right. I'm, I'm no good. I'm not even good as a midfield general, I'm afraid, anymore. All right. Um, I think I play well within myself, which, <laughs> which, le- which tries to avoid pulling any muscles by hardly using any of them. But it's, it's like if uh, there's like a cone on the pitch. So if somebody could hit my leg and it goes in the goal, that's... That's a goal for me. I'm, I'm yeah, the goal yeah, scorer. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a triumph. That's, a tri- <laughs> that's something to talk about happen. for weeks. 
So this ball, which would have been, I think, you know, a leather ball for a five-year-old boy, is, yes. you know, it's a, it's a lovely thing to receive, but I'm sure the first time you kicked it, you thought, oh, my goodness, this is heavy. <laughs> well, there weren't, if you remember the, the way uh, your way balls were in those days, <laughs> they weren't too heavy the very first time. It's just that if you kicked it around on, uh, on a wet day or wet yeah. grass, it would absorb water. Yes. And uh, it got heavier and heavier and... Uh, you know, we played football at school, a bit older than that, maybe, you know, up to age 11. And you still had to head the ball, even though it was a heavy ball. Mm. I, think they're, I think they're worrying about this now, as it may cause, you know, injury. Uh, yes. Whether it's better to head a light ball, I, I don't know, because it's still going to have a force to it. Let's not worry too much about Let's these. Let's not worry about that. Because I've had, not, a li- not, as I say, a lifetime of, uh, of jollity and interest, either, you know, looking at football matches or playing in them. You've been a lifelong Arsenal fan, is that right? Yes, uh, yes. And, you know, there's, there's been some downs and ups, uh, ups <laughs> and downs in the... So not, it's not fantastic at the moment, but uh, uh, we've had some good times. Yes. Uh, well, for the first few years that he followed, uh, when I was introduced to Arsenal, they didn't win anything at all. They were, they were a really nondescript team. And uh, I'm afraid my memories go right back to the 60s mm. and Arsenal didn't win anything until right at the end or just became the 70s and won the double, you know, the cup the, yeah. and the league. And the Charlie league. George. Yeah. I bump into him from time to time. He, Do you really? He, Has he got bad eyesight? I... <laughs> Yeah, that's, got better. that's all that heading of the ball. <laughs> so I live in Highbury and I think he does still. So he's a great uh, example of just, just how it ought to be, that you're a local lad, you've got a prodigious talent, precocious talent in his case, mm. and he was, a, he was a bit wild, I think, as, as a, in his youth and his playing days, but he's not wild anymore. He's uh, Mr Nice Guy now. Oh, lovely. <laughs> all right, well, well, let's take that football then. OK. And, uh, and we're going to preserve it. I'll put some dubbing in. Just okay. in case it's a rainy day, so we can protect it. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> and we'll put it into the time capsule. Yes. So lovely. That's your first item. Yeah. Right. What's your second item? Well, I thought the next thing uh, to do. Um, now, admittedly, see, I haven't got this football anymore. It's a notional football, and I'd like to put my barrister's wig in uh, the uh, time capsule yeah. as well. I haven't actually got that either uh, anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm sure with the facilities of the podcast, you could re-equip me either find it for me, get it back for me, or you know, equip me with another one. I don't insist on things actually existing. I'm sure we can find them and put it in the time capsule. Yeah, but as people I know uh, who aren't involved in the law, and I would recommend trying not to get involved with the law, <laughs> at least not as a customer or a client or no. a defendant or a litigant. And, you know, you're vaguely aware that, that people wear odd things in court. And uh, at least in criminal courts, barristers still wear a wig and the uh, judges wear a wig. Though they're not quite the wigs that people sometimes assume you wear because if, I'm sure you've been in sketches and plays and, and dramas and things mm-hmm. and the judge wears a wig down to his shoulders and so does the barrister. But that's not what the, uh, barristers or judges wear in, um, in a courtroom. It's a little wig that perches on the top of your head in mm. each case. Those long bottom wigs are just for the formal time when perhaps you're made into a judge or you become a QC. And so people get the idea well, that's what they wear and they're a bit disappointed sometimes when they go to, or go to see the Court of Appeal or something and the judges are wearing these little wigs. You think, well, have we, we come on a dull day? Where's the proper fool <laughs> I don't wear? Anyway, as a barrister, you have very special clothes you have to wear in court. Mm. Uh, we're quite weird, really. Um, I mean, they're odder even than people perhaps realise. So you wear all black uh, with, you know, with a white stiff collar. A wing collar, in fact. It's a wing well, collar, yeah. 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 And a wig and a special gown. So it's, it's unlike any other 
profession or um, academic gown. It's mm. even got a little sort of bag thing attached to the shoulder of the barrister's gown and then a tape coming down the front, which might link up with the bag or might not. Nobody's quite sure if it should do or not. And nobody really knows what that's doing there. Mm. Uh, what's that on the gown for? Bribery? Well, yes, almost. Oh. Uh, the um, One theory is that barristers, when they appeared in court, were, were gentlemen and they weren't tradesmen and so they didn't expect to render a bill to the solicitor who would be briefing them or the client or something. So they would just have this little bag over their shoulder into which could be tucked some amount of money that could be given to them. That's one theory yeah. why this bag might exist. Another theory is that wigs were a bit longer when they first wore them and had um, they'd be sort of oiled or greased and the bag was to sort of have the sort of dangly bits of the wig enclosed in there to keep you from uh, mucking up your clothing. I actually studied law. Yes. I don't know if you knew that about me. I think I did know that, but I'm yes. aware that not everybody listening will know. No, it's just, uh, you know, I've, I've never quite sure whether I've told you or not. <laughs> but I, I, studied, I studied law, and I did work for a year before I went to university. Well, as a solicitor's clerk, I think, yeah. uh, but went to the Old Bailey regularly. The thing I remember about it, the barristers, uh, w- was that they carried those wigs in a black metal box yes with a gold trim to it yeah did you have one of those uh, i did uh, oddly enough i had a leather version of that i can't remember why i decided to go with that i thought it'd be lighter and less less but my i know my wig i was very disappointed with uh, once i had it to be a barrister you have to be a member of what's called an inn of court mm. middle temple inner temple gray's in lincoln's inn and there's a ceremony to become a barrister. You're called to the bar to be uh, to be a barrister. You have to do that. Mm. And uh, in the Middle Temple, you, you do that while dressed as a barrister. So you wear a wig and gown. It doesn't apply to the other inns of court necessarily. So I was about to be called to the bar. We had a couple of days to spare. And I had realised in my usual incompetent way, I hadn't really thought about getting myself a wig. Well, there's a proper place you, you go to, uh, Eden Ravenscroft, and they measure your head and they design your wig to fit you exactly. But it was way too late to do that. So oh, I'll just borrow somebody else's. And But a friend of mine said, oh, look, there's a place around the corner. They sell you can, it's an off, like, off the peg wig. And uh, <laughs> so I went in there. Oh, yeah, we can do much cheaper. And, then, and I wasn't really concentrating on what they're telling me. They were basically giving me or selling me a lightweight kind of summer wig that wouldn't uh. be too, which is fine. It wasn't quite an interesting idea. But when I realised, it just didn't look quite good enough. It looked like a rather cheap version. So I was, you know, I wouldn't have minded sort of somehow losing it and having to replace it with a better one. But, of course, if you don't mind losing something, you never do. So um, No. But I, I always thought that the status of a barrister was judged by how warm their wig was. In fact, quite often, because it's sort of a family profession, yeah. quite often you would inherit your own father's wig. Ah, yes, I didn't, have, uh, I didn't have the long tradition in my family of distinguished <laughs> no. lawyers, I'm afraid. Most people buy one, uh, but it starts off looking quite white and mm. uh, it gets a bit greyer looking and, and sort of older looking and uh, that gives you an indication of your seniority. Uh, and you never got to cue see i didn't get that far i'm afraid and and my wig didn't ever really get a very old looking. so i i yeah I, was, I did quite a lot of years maybe 14 years as a barrister it was quite mm. a long you know long enough to for it to enter my soul as it were and <laughs> to make me uh, the person i was yes and so at the same time as being a barrister you you were basically also working as a warm-up man weren't you well 
Yes, I did. I did sort of things on the side in in comedy, quite a small way, really, for for a long while. So I did a bit of stand up comedy at the sort of comedy store and places like that. And I used to write jokes for for sketch shows and mm. bits and pieces. And on the back of that, I got asked to do the warm up. Say a show like you know, Last Smith and Jones, Griff Rhys Jones and Mel Smith. I wrote quite a bit on that. And then I do the the warm up. And I think yeah. I was a better warm up person who who keeps the studio audience happy or gend up. Especially in the sketch show, there's lots of gaps. So it's quite a it's not a job that most people like, but I quite liked it. Mm. And I, as I say, I think I was better at that than actually doing the proper creative work of writing the material. <laughs> <laughs> what about as a barrister? What sort of law did you practice? Well, I mostly did crime, which is not the most highfalutin area of the law. It's it's probably what people think of when you say you're a barrister. You go, mm. Oh, yeah, you do. You represent, you know, in, ju- in jury trials and things like that. But yeah. in fact, the people who make the real money at the bar do, you know, tax disputes or land law or e- equity. You know, it's a, crime is... I found it the most fun to do and interesting to do, but mm. it's almost entirely publicly funded. Uh, therefore, the fees are not just... You don't just think of a figure and charge it. You're given whatever the government feels it can afford on mm. uh, paying for things like that. And uh, I understand from my friends at the criminal bar, it's almost impossible to make a living. Yes, it's got worse. You can sort of understand it. If the government's trying to cut down on spending, if they say, well, we're not going to build another hospital, there's, there's a... There's a riot. If you say, well, we're not spending so much on, on getting criminals represented in court and <laughs> barristers and lawyers are not going to get so much money, yeah, you know, there's no, <laughs> yeah, nobody's marching vote. on Downing Street. <laughs> Occasionally, I think barristers have, have recently, but nobody joins in. Nobody's, what do we want? More money for lawyers. <laughs> what do you, when do we want it? Well, take as long as they normally do to answer a letter. Six months, probably. <laughs> Six months to pay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so it, it's, it's tough, but I, I I had a sort of double life for for a bit, mm. doing, you know, as you say, studio warm-ups, bit of writing, bit of stand-up comedy. Uh, my father was a criminal lawyer. Yeah, did he ever brief me when I was uh, uh, needing I, I it? I don't think he did, no. I think you warned him off me. He never mentioned it. No, no. He worked entirely in criminal law, but always in defence. Yes. But my father did some very interesting cases over the years. He wrote the brief for Lord Hutchinson, Jeremy Hutchinson, for the Christine Keeler defence. Oh, right. In her perjury trial. Yes. It was recently uh, sort of dramatised on television, and I noticed that in those circumstances, the solicitor was completely cut from the whole process. <laughs> it's the trouble. You, I suppose it applies to anything that you know anything about, uh, but uh, courtroom scenes and legal scenes are always wrong, um, and yes. in, a, in an irritating way. So, you know, if the fact that there might be a, an absolute requirement for the solicitor to be there, oh, no, we can't, we, we haven't got time to have that. We'll just, you know, cut him out or... Yeah. Well, it's, oh, Bailey, we know what that looks like. Yeah, it doesn't... Yeah, but we've got a cheap, like, uh, another court that uh, we've... We'll use that. It's a council office, I know. And the barristers... um, You know how, you know, in, in like, an American film, you go up and stand in front of the witness and harangue, we want that bit. No, barristers don't do that in this country. They stay where they are. Yes, they do. They do. We've seen it in thousands of scenes. Yeah, because always you just copy what you've seen yeah. in, a, in an American film, which goodness only knows if it actually happens in America as well, but it certainly doesn't happen in an English uh, courtroom. No. Uh, I have occasionally played a barrister, strangely enough, once with Paul Merton, 
uh, you mentioned earlier. Oh, right. Yes, yes. in his uh, Gordon and Simpson series. I played a barrister in that. In the Hancock one, yeah, the yeah. Uh, Magna Carta. T- yeah, 12 Angry Men. Yeah, did she die? Yeah, <laughs> that, that famous word. It starts in the court. Yes. People forget that it, you think it's mostly in the jury room, but actually it starts in the court, and I played the barrister in that. Oh. And I did have to say to them, I'm sorry, but I'm a junior, and this is a QC's week. And everybody looked at me <laughs> as if I was such an ass. <laughs> <laughs> there was a TV series on uh, not long ago, and um, the plot of the whole series depended upon the the victims in the case deciding to ask the prosecuting barrister to come out of retirement because they wanted her to prosecute the criminal case. And somebody must have said, well, victims and witnesses in cases don't get to choose no. the prosecuting. Everyone knows that, so that can't, that can't work. And then somebody else said... Yeah, but we've written it now. <laughs> we've, we've, yeah. booked, we've booked some expensive uh, actress to play the, the part. We Isn't can't. that often the way? <laughs> Can I make a, a, a boast? Because uh, this reminds me of something we were talking about before we started. I do have the last letter ever written by John Profumo before he died. Really? It was, um, <laughs> is, that, is that exciting? Is that an exciting thing? It does excite me. I mean, having made the mistakes he made, yes. he then led a life which was quite extraordinary, wasn't it? He, he worked almost entirely for charity for years and years, didn't he? Yes, he was very interested in a charity in the East End of London, and it just lodged in my mind because unusually, I don't know how, maybe my wife had got up and the post had come early, so she came up and uh, and I had a letter which I'd opened in bed. I don't very often do this, and I opened it, and it was it was from John Profumo. Oh, you don't want to be in bed with John Profumo. <laughs> I was in bed. <laughs> and so while I was opening it, Radio 4 was on, and the news was coming, and John Profumo has died, the, you know, the family. So he had, he ran a charity, or he was the sort of the notional head of a charity in the East End of London. Mm. And rather confusingly, they asked me to give a lecture. And I thought, oh, God, I've got to write a lecture. Then I, when I got there, I realised they didn't really want a lecture. They wanted me to do some manky old jokes the way I would have normally. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I did it in the end. Uh, and, uh, but the letter was from him saying, oh, I, I'm so pleased you've agreed to whatever the letter was. Mm. So I must try and find that letter in case I never, ever need to show an interesting um, object. Well, while we're on the subject of uh, last things and podcasts, uh, I sent a message to Danny Baker today because one of the things he does is a podcast where he's uh, up in a treehouse talking as if he's talking to his mates and he puts out little tweets asking for things and uh, today he asked can anybody claim they were the first to do anything i was able to tell him that i was the first actor to speak shakespeare on the globe stage when it was rebuilt what part were you playing i wasn't playing a part i was filming something nearby and we were constantly disturbed by the hammering as they laid the planks on the stage of the globe yes and i wandered in and they stopped hammering Mm. and i said uh is it finished and the fellow said yeah sorry sorry to disturb you mate i said no it's all right that's all right do you mind if i walk on it Mm. so i climbed up onto the stage and and i i then did a speech from hamlet what the rest is silence (laughs) (laughs) and no i did how all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. Oh, wow. and, uh, and And at the end of it, these blokes with their belts and their hammers and everything gave me a polite round of applause. And one bloke said, very nice, mate. So I was the first person to walk on the stage, first person to say Shakespeare. Yeah, I, I would think that would be magnificent because your beautiful actuary voice <laughs> would carry to the back of the auditorium. It's a, it's a good thing. I was very dubious about it when they were going to, oh, we're going to reconstruct something very nearly on the side of the globe. Mm. And use but in fact, once it was done, it's fantastic. It is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, and like all theatres, under threat. 
I think. Oh, it really? May disappear. Well, yes. Yeah, we're, we're at the sad loss if these things go because the buildings will stay, but uh, you know, you, the, the whole structure underneath it needs funding. Uh, it's mm. one of the great quandaries we're going through at the moment. France, uh, they seem to have decided that it's worth funding the arts, and I think they've set up a fund that will keep the arts going until next August, completely funded. All oh, right, yeah, because they say it would be, uh, you know, like Winston Churchill said when they said we need to cut the arts budget during the Second World War, and he said, well, what are we fighting for, <laughs> if not to keep the theatres open? <laughs> there you are, that's my Winston Churchill I think effort. you should be doing that on the stage of the <laughs> globe. <laughs> Enough of my rambling. So we're going to take your barrister's wig. I, I shall put it into a, a leather box for you. Yeah. And we shall put it into the time capsule. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Okay, so we've done two, so we've got three more. Yes. So what's your next one? We're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back with Clive very soon. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Thanks for waiting. Right, let's get back to Clive Anderson and find out what else he'd like to put in his time capsule. Now, my next thing, um, I'd like to take a tree. Is there room in the time capsule for a tree? Uh, yes, it's as large as you need it to be. Well, I, I suppose I could just take a, an acorn, because that would take up less space. You've got time. And I don't know where the time capsule is going to be, but if it could just have a little crack in it that the, the acorn could force itself out, we will eventually get a, an oak tree. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'd like a tree, because I have a long-standing interest in trees, and for quite a few years I've been president of the Woodland Trust. Mm-hmm. So I've, um, I've advocated on behalf of trees up and down the country. So, I, so in part of the attraction of getting people interested in trees, ki- kids quite like growing trees, but also old people, because people like to think, oh, I could plant some trees here, and although I'll never see them, or not in their full glory, I can imagine, you know, even on my deathbed, I can be thinking, in a 100 years' time, this will be a forest or an avenue of trees or mm. some shading around these fields. or I, th- I think that's the frame of mind perhaps I'm in for um, <laughs> wanting to take a tree or at least an acorn that'll grow into a, a tree. But I think it's true of, of almost anybody who plants a tree. You're never going to see it 
really come to fruition. Mm. But it is a charming thing, isn't it? Yes. The idea of, of saying, one day this will look like this. Yeah. My father-in-law insisted that he would see his trees grow to fruition, mm. uh, even though he, he had cancer at the time when he was planting them. I think it was a sort of a, a ray of hope for him. Oh, right, yeah. I'm going to stay. I'm going yeah. to bloody stay and see these things. But if you look at sort of things like Capability Brown, to see the glory of those things yeah. in 200 years' time, it's a marvellous thing, isn't yes, it? Yes, it's a sort of artwork requiring time mm. to bring it off. But just planting an area with trees in it without any particular design, other than you can still imagine the uh, the forest of the future, um, yes. or hope for it at any rate. They're extraordinary things as well, aren't they? Forests and woods. Mm. And, and we're only really, I think, just learning about them now. Well, yes, the thing about them is they only really sort of grow to their full potential after perhaps hundreds of years. Mm. So the only term you can really use is ancient woods, which in this country you can say, well, if trees have been growing on the same spot for 400 years, the records up before that are too inaccurate. Mm. You can't say for certain it's a, a wild wood that's always been there, but if it's been there for 400 years, it will have acquired a whole ecosystem of funguses and interlocking plants and things. So, so sometimes, sadly, there is a need to chop down uh, an ancient woodland yeah. uh, because somebody has to have a railway or a road or an airport or whatever it is. And usually these days, the relevant government agency will say, well, never mind, although we're going to chop down that ancient wood, we will plant some trees you know, further over uh, maybe yeah. more trees and you think well that's quite good that's that's uh, it's a bit good but it's going to take hundreds of years to get back to what you've lost and and that's just in this country but then you look at the world when sort of brazil or indonesia yes. or west africa and you're chopping down trees that have been there for hundreds of years you're going to make a, a bit of a profit maybe you're going to turn it into uh, grassland for for cows it, it's it's not doing the planet any good in 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 the long run no and, and they'll never really be those same sort of woods again, will they? I no. mean, because you, they'll plant conifers or something. You know, so, so Yes, well, some trees don't really uh, come back. Even it's quite hard to get um, oak trees to germinate in this country now. They they get a mildew, so they can, if it's a nice sunny area, they, they can turn into oak trees, mm. just naturally, just wild on their own. But within a wood, it's quite hard for them to do that now. They, they get too mildewy, so it's... Uh, and there's quite a lot of diseases. Anyway, I don't, I don't want to be you know, despondent about trees. No, 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 I mean, there are marvellous things. My, my wife, just today, I was walking in woodland, mm. and my wife pointed out to me a thing called a mother tree. Yes. And I, I had no idea what it was. But she said that in the midst of all these oaks was one huge oak. Yeah. And she said that's the mother tree. And it actually feeds the saplings and uh, and helps to spread the fungus. And Yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of work has been done about this underground root systems. And mm. I mean, some of it sounds a bit fanciful when you first hear it. They sort of warn each other of, uh, of impending insect arrivals. I'm, I'm not sure how... Mm. How scientific that is. But I'll tell you how I became president of the Woodland Trust. You do, yes. I was on a programme on the television called Ready, Steady, Cook. Uh, or Celebrity Ready, Steady, Cook. I think, we, I think my agent insisted <laughs> upon that. They did a short series of people, you know, off other programmes to come on and do Ready, Steady, Cook. I'm not just cooking. I'm not going to bloody just cook. I'm going on as a celebrity, thank you. Well, it's an odd programme. I think it's been brought back. And it's one of these programmes that, that succeeds in spite itself. So the, mm. so the idea of it is two people compete and they're given or they have a budget of £20, I think it was, uh, of ingredients. And then you, before the studio audience, you cook a meal and you're against each other. So it's either the one signalled by the red pepper or the green pepper wins. Yes. Now, the odd thing about it is 
the, the audience judges which is the better dish, but they don't get to taste it. <laughs> so it's done in real time. So I can't remember how long the show is, maybe half an hour, maybe three quarters of an hour. They, they, you come in saying you've bought the ingredients. I mean, they, it's not exactly a fiddle. They just make sure you don't go above the £20. But they buy the ingredients for £20, mm. so they keep within your limit. And you don't even cook the food because you're assisted by... Uh, a chef who's there. In my case, it was Ainsley Harriet. So, as I assisted by, so he basically, oh, Kai, that's good to see you. And he cooked the thing with me, sort of, you know, handing him things and doing some mundane things. But this, because it was a celebrity thing, you didn't win any money or a prize or anything. You won some money for your charity you were going to nominate. Mm-hmm. So, my becoming president of Woodland Trust depends upon me winning this particular episode. And I was, um, I was up against Gregor Fisher, uh, yeah. you know. F- um, yes. Rabsi Nesbit. Rabsi Nesbit. So, so he was uh, he was cooking on his side of the thing, and I was cooking on mine. And uh, you go out of the studio for a bit and somewhere, then you come back in again, and they're, they're about to vote. And Fern Britton was presenting the time, and she uh, she asks you if you bring something in of your own, something in addition that you cook. So I brought some marmalade in because I make marmalade most years and she wasn't quite certain of that because it would taste a bit soapy and I think somebody had, had washed the jar because it was a bit too <laughs> sticky. It's all this, my, my fabulous... <laughs> the, oh, no, I'm losing it on the, on the marmalade. And then they said, oh, and uh, so they are, well, Gregor, what, <laughs> what have you brought in? He said, well, I've brought, I've brought some potatoes in from my own garden. And uh, she said, oh, you grew those yourself. And he, he had a flash of honesty came over him and said, Oh, no, my gardener did. Oh. And there was a... Wait a minute. Rabsi Nesbitt's got a gardener. <laughs> <laughs> the audience, which was a London audience, admitted, t- took against him. They, at that point, I think he was winning on the basis that my marmalade was soapy at that point. But no, yeah. he's got a gardener, Rabsi Nesbitt. And so then they came to the I won, and I had to say which charity. Now, usually people have... They've got a, a story to tell, fair enough, about a, um, a you know, relative or, a, and they, mm-hmm. or they go for a children's hospital or something like that. And I just thought, some charities never win out on these things and I'm so keen on trees I'll say the Woodland Trust and they all oh alright so <laughs> but the Woodland Trust the guy running it at the time saw that and he said uh, he got in contact he said well if you're so keen on the Woodland Trust you could be our president and I said well that'd be great um, am I not replacing somebody he said oh no it's an important role well who am I replacing well we've never had a president before <laughs> we've, we've survived without a president <laughs> but we could make you the president so I suppose he should have just said come and be a a known supporter or something. But anyway, yeah. so that's uh, so I've been there ever since. So a, I'm sure there'll be a revolution at some point and I'll be replaced. But so since then, which is quite a few years ago, I'm the president of the Woodland Trust. And what do you have to do as a president? Well, I don't have to do a great deal, but yeah. I make the odd speech, a bit of mm. fundraising. Uh, I planted trees, you know, in you know, sort of ceremonial ways, sometimes even yeah. with a member of the royal family there, you know, to encourage things along. And... Uh, no, it's it's it's, it's uh, if I say so myself, it's quite a well-run charity. Mm. It's quite young as charities go. I think it started about 1972 mm-hmm. uh, with one guy who was kept making a nuisance of himself somewhere in Devon. I think it was. He kept objecting to things that were destroying hedges and trees and everything. Somebody said to him. You know, you can't keep coming to these parish council meetings and county council meetings if you, and getting involved. You should have your own charity. You're so keen, and he and he so he said, "Oh, okay." So he started the Woodland Trust, and it's from, since 1972, which is not a million years ago. It's you know become a national charity with lots and lots of um, well, a certain amount of land and lots of mm-hmm. woods, and encourages 
landowners to plant trees and to um, increase the tree cover of the of the mm. country. It's funny, isn't it, being asked to do those sort of things? Um, I am the president of a children's theatre group, oh, yes. a charitable children's theatre group in Soham called Viva, and they are absolutely brilliant, and I love going there. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's a very small charity, but they've done extraordinary things. The man who runs it is a man called Dan Schumann, and he a young man he was when he started it, and now he's uh, he's you know he's not so young, yeah. but he's actually in the last two years raised enough money to build a theatre in Soham. Oh well, done him. I know it's it's incredible. But I often feel like a complete interloper. I feel, you know, well, couldn't you get somebody famous to do this? Oh. Uh, but they seem to be happy with me going on and, and just messing about a bit. And I'm sure you well could done. take part in the plays and uh, tell them about your time on the... <laughs> you haven't seen them. I'm not good enough. The Globe I'm not theater. good enough, Clive. <laughs> they wouldn't have me. <laughs> I've tried. I've tried. I've said, I'll sing, I'll sing. And they say, shut up. <laughs> I bet they don't. Uh... <laughs> But it's another thing, when you're on the telly a bit, you do get asked to be a, normally a patron or a president or do... And I, uh, I try to only say yes to things where I think I can do something. Yes, or to have a particular personal involvement in the thing, is, mm. I think, is, is, is the important thing. I wish that I'd been involved in a children's charity that did theatre when I was a small boy, rather yeah. than just singing on my own in my bedroom. Oh, but right. there we are. I think you should have a full tree, Clive. Okay, I'm full put tree. In a, a glorious English oak. Yes, it's sort of suitable because the Anderson family—it's uh, a sort of Scottish family—has a sort of emblem uh, to, to go with it, and which is a, an oak tree, and, mm-hmm. it has, and it has a motto: "Stand sure." So, which is kind of goes with a. I suppose in Scotland we probably won't call it an English oak tree, but I know what you mean. It is. It? Yes. yes, Quercus roba. Lovely. So that's it. We've got two items left. Two items left. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I, I, I wondered if I could uh, take a radio with me. It may indicate, it may be a puzzling object uh, for people to come across in 100 years' time. What is True. this thing? Mm. Um, we might as well do... I mean, obviously, radios come in uh, lots of shapes and sizes, but uh, mm. I think I'm a bit addicted to radio. So my wife bought me a little radio. So you have a... you know, put earphones in and you yeah. have it in your pocket. So it means that even when I'm walking the dog or um, going for a run, assuming I went for a run, or <laughs> at any time, I can always be listening to, to the radio. I know some people are like that with maybe with music. Uh, they're always listening to whatever music it goes with. I like listening to the radio, people talking to me, a bit of news, could be mm-hmm. a play, it could be a sports commentary, you know, any, anything like that. I like the sound of people gabbling away to me so i so i'm a bit addicted to it but mm. i suppose since i do make radio programs i suppose i'm a a pusher of uh, radio as well so yes. I'm, I'm involved in the the addiction. are you a sort of a radio four man or, or i'm or a radio sport? four but i do stray onto radio five live as well um mm-hmm. if if it's like for uh, football commentary so i i I rock between those two, really, and mm. I even have it on quite often when I'm working. Uh, sometimes I can't cope with a human voice and I have to go off to, might be uh, Radio 6 music or something like that, but I'm not as right. invested in music uh, in, in that sense, so that makes it just sort of background noise. So uh, do you think then uh, that, in fact, what we're doing is slightly killing the world of radio? We're doing a podcast, and in fact, do you think that might be the future of, of spoken word? Or? Well, it, it probably is, in the same way that uh, nowadays people 
tend to watch series on Netflix or or could be the Disney Channel or whatever, mm. rather less than just switching on BBC One, going to BBC Two, Channel Four, whatever. Now, uh, a lot of people, myself included, we've got loads and loads of channels. Mm. And you, somebody says, oh, you really ought to watch such and such a series. And you sit and watch all evening, maybe. Yeah. What are in technically five episodes, six episodes of a of a series. But that's... That's almost irrelevant now. That's it's just a whole lot of content. And on the podcast now, you know, I, I do a chat show on uh, Radio Four, Loose Ends, and we, you know, we tighten it down to a forty-five minute show, a couple of bits of music, mostly conversation, quite mm. concentrated thing. But that's in in some ways good. In some ways, it's a bit too quick. And um, you can do a podcast like this where there's a little bit more room to breathe because you can say, well. We can keep going for 20 minutes with this guest or we could do an hour. I mean, just. Yes. Uh, I mean, obviously, if you get the judgment right, you may put the listener off, but you don't have to stick to pre-constructed schedule. That- no, no. And some of the most, well, in fact, the most popular podcasts in the world, Rogan, I think it is, yes. his podcasts sometimes last for two, two and a half hours. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend making this conversation with me. But, <laughs> <over time. laughs> but I think, this is why I think for a time capsule, this might work quite well because it's a, it, it'll indicate, because it, it'll be a radio that you can see, oh, you can get Radio 4, Radio 4 mm. Extra, Radio 5 Live, Radio 4 Live Live Sports, always Radio 2, Radio 1. What are all these things? Why don't you just go straight to Mike Fenton Stevens' podcast? That's what you want to listen to. Or, <laughs> or you know, those great series. They do some yes, fantastic series about... It's a, it's a different world, isn't it? The world of actually saying, well, it's on at that time, yes. so I make myself available for that time. You know, of course, radio now are constantly pushing the idea of, that you can hear a programme again, listen again. Yes. Or you can listen to our podcast where we will sum up the whole thing. And in fact, you will hear an extended version of the You can find us again on BBC Sounds. I, uh, yeah. That's something I say every week constantly. But, but I, I like the idea that radio is quite a personal thing. Uh, mm. I, I think... Well, obviously, you can sit and watch a television on your own, or you can even go to the cinema on your own, but mostly you do that in company with other people. But I remember from being quite young, I used to like to go and listen to, like, I mean, I've always been into comedy, so I'd go and listen quietly on my own to comedy programmes. Yeah. I can only really remember communal listening to the radio. We did we Quite often, my aunt came for lunch on a Sunday, and she liked listening to the radio, and she loved in programmes like Round the Horn. Round <laughs> yeah. the Horn. Now, she was literally a maiden aunt. And I think, I think, I don't know what, I know, I've no idea. You know, when, oh, hello, Julian, uh, how's Sandy? At those extended periods of camp comedy and an innuendo coming in. She was laughing away and I never really got down to, do you, do you know why that's funny? Or or why was this recorded as an appropriate thing to listen to over, or just before maybe Sunday lunch? And we're all chuckling away at these quite dirty jokes. traditionally with the English comedy, you can be absolutely filthy with innuendo. Really filthy. Yeah. Look at Julian Clary. Yes. But it's only once got in trouble with it. You may well have even been there. I was. I was worse than that. I was there and I don't know why I realised that the camera came to me as a a reaction. <laughs> You're trying to work out. Oh, no, no, I know it's funny, uh, but I, I don't know. Is this going to be? Is... <laughs> so you got to look. Uh, well, your I'm laughing, really but I'm was... shocked. But you know, but you know, Julian is a nice guy. I'm not going. I'm not going to. No. <laughs> yeah. I think that caused him quite a lot of trouble, didn't it? But uh, he came through it. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know why, because um, I suppose because he was there, Lamont. It was a different thing. But that is 
it's not really innuendo, is it? Well, I don't that know. He said, absolute... "I'm going. To, I've, I'm sorry. I'm. I've just been. I've been fisting Norman Lamont, which yeah. is, uh, you know, is a bit, a bit strong." And then he said, "Talk about a red box," which I think yeah. uh, was an unnecessary little addition uh, to that. But you know, that's you know, in the moment he was because uh, it was live. the comedy awards that was at, and they, if you remember, they. Um, they were always trouble at the comedy awards because mm. everyone was kept waiting for a long while with lo- and given loads to drink loads. and no food until afterwards and a lot of raucous comedians in the room uh, trying to outdo each other. Yeah, and uh, it was it was it was interesting. So I miss it. I have to say, I think uh, I think if you're going to do comedy and occasionally you put everybody together in a room, it should be dangerous comedy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I'm I'm. I'm plugging away with the idea of radio, and I just I wonder what your view is, Michael. So your, you know, your program, uh, Radioactive. Yes, uh, that was a big success on. And I know you do a sort of stage version of it now. But see, you've done this interviewer thing, haven't you? You've turned it round now. You've no, no, but I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, I will answer your questions. Some things look work very well on radio. They they look really well on radio, and comedy is a prime example of it. Yeah. I think it's possible for podcasts to replace spoken word yeah. radio. I think it could happen. Uh, and it, it could got to the point where so few people are listening to Radio 4 that actually, you know, why not? Mm. Uh, and you can get all the news and everything you want so instantly now in all sorts of ways. Yes. That the idea of having to tell you the news every hour on the hour again could become outdated i think yes maybe i think it is a shame because i like the rigor of the half hourly slot uh, you know i'm i think i'm probably more rigorous with this podcast than many people are with podcasts yes the one thing i would say uh, the only thing i don't like about radio is they often interrupt things and say we're gonna we're gonna go for the the traffic report or, or the mm. weather report and it just as you know they've got the the pope on there just about to admit he's about to invade venezuela so i'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> you know this we've got to, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to stop you there. I have no, I, you know, I drive around quite a bit and I don't ever remember getting an indication of a traffic jam that was any use to me on the radio. That's a, no. that's a thing for local radio to do because it's well worth saying on a local thing, oh, look, the high street's blocked by a water main that's burst, so go around the other way. But saying, oh, and here's a, and yes, there's a blockage on the M, M something you've never heard of, another one down in Cornwall and there's a, in Hampshire. Like, no, but this is no good to me. What's happening on the M25? What's it? No use at all. Yeah. And not only that, you... Without a doubt, your sat-nav will be reacting more quickly mm. than they will be by getting the information, the waiting to their sort of half-hourly slot yes. and then telling you about it. Yeah. I mean, they never mention a traffic jam you're sitting in, do they, <laughs> on the radio? No. And if you are sitting in it, it's too late anyway, isn't it? <laughs> the M1 is blocked just outside Luton. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it yes. certainly is. I could have told you that an hour ago. <laughs> Still. Yes, it's very true. Well, uh, but, you know, I like the idea that you'll put a radio into the time capsule mm. and that actually people will open up the time capsule in the future and and, and wonder at it. Think They're going to be puzzled. Why didn't they put pictures with this? Why can't you see anything? What's the point of just having voices? Do you think that will disappear? Well, I don't know. In fact, I suppose you could put any bit of technology into this time capsule. The, the things that we... I mean, you know, I'm speaking to you via, I've got a microphone plugged into a, a MacBook. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this, I don't know how long I've had it. It's, it's just people looking and say, oh, you, about time you upgraded that, isn't it? I think, well, I've had it about five years. But so if this time <laughs> caps is going to be picked up in 100 years' time, it'll look so weird. Yes. And you won't be able to access anything on it because the, the software will have been forgotten. Occasionally these things turn around. I'm going to take you back to law. Yes. I have a friend who worked as a solicitor for British Telecom. Yeah. 
and he was put in charge of selling all the old tubes that ran all over London, and they had been used as a sort of air compression system of sending capsules between major offices around London. It was a system set up by the Victorians. Uh, An extraordinary thing. Yeah. You know, you'd put this thing into the tube. And then you have to blow really hard. (laughs) Yeah, but then you blow really hard and hope it goes to the right office. Old-fashioned shops used to have something like that, didn't they? Uh... Yeah, they have them in shops, didn't they? But uh, but anyway, this was all over London. Mm. It had only existed for a few years and then become redundant. But it was still owned by British Telecom. And to dig it all up was going to cost them a fortune, so they decided to sell it. And they sold it for very little money. And then Wireless and Cable, who bought it from them, fed all their fibre-optic cables through these tubes oh. and saved themselves a fortune. Yes. Well, just to preserve it then, absolutely, we should put radio, which has been important in both our lives, into the time capsule. And so we've got one final thing, and I'm afraid this is something that you would like to be rid of, really. Well, it's unfashionable to want to get rid of this, but it's it's a bicycle. But it's not it's not any bicycle. <laughs> it's the bicycle I was riding when I was eleven, when I had quite a bad road accident. Yeah. Um, it was nobody's fault but my own, and irritatingly, the bicycle was undamaged. And once I recovered, I, I rode it afterwards, and uh, it didn't uh, put me off bicycling, although I advanced to motor bicycling, which was much more exciting. Uh, but at the time, uh, I, had a, I had a bad uh, cycle accident. What happened to you? It was the summer holiday between uh, primary school and grammar school. Mm. And my father was away for a week. He, he, he went away once a year for a week. And uh, I don't know have you found this, but I think one parent being away from a two-parent household, something always goes wrong while that one yeah. parent is away. Anyway, uh, <laughs> unusually, we decided to have uh, fish and chips for lunch. Normally, we, we might have only occasionally ever had that, but it would be an evening thing. But for some reason, my mother said, all right, because yes, she didn't drive, so we didn't have a car. I would cycle off to the shops uh, to get the fish and chips. And, of course, when you start doing that, oh, yeah, while you're there, get a loaf of bread. While you get, And so I, had, I wasn't overladen, but I had a few things on my... So I was cycling home, happy as Larry. It was a summer day. And I think what I did, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it was one of these bicycles, you had a gear change, a Sturmy Archer three-gear thing on my right hand. And I leant over, because I was carrying things, I leant over with my left hand to change gear. Yeah. And that sent me across in front of a, a guy, an old oldish man, and a couple, old couple driving, I think a Morris Thousand. In no way it was their fault, but I don't think they stopped very quickly. So I was dragged along the ground. So they hit you? They actually they hit, did hit me. Hit me. They hit me in the face. It damaged my teeth. I had a big injury to my knee, and it scraped all the skin off my off my back. Yeah. Uh, but strangely, none of my clothing seemed to be destroyed in this process. And I said the bicycle was also all right, but I was quite considerably damaged. But when I sort of, um, they, you know, people turned up and they all oh, no, screamed, poor little kid getting knocked over. Mm. Um, I, I was only concerned about my teeth because I had a friend who had his teeth damaged. So I thought, oh no, God, I'm going to have those, you know, a chip in my teeth now. But yeah. And they said, well, what's the, uh, you know, what, how, how are you feeling? I said, well, my knee it hurts a bit, but I, I had a scab on my knee. I thought I might, I might have knocked the scab off. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I had 15 stitches in this huge gaping wound. And the skin was all scraped off my back. So they got me into the ambulance and took me to the hospital. And um, they said, oh, um, 
Oh, I know, we've got some special stuff here. It's like plastic skin. We'll spray this over your, your thing. And it, it was really a real stingy pain when they sprayed it on. Oh, we've got to, to X-ray you. So roll over like that. And then all this stuff came off on the bed. And, and then they sprayed it on again. And, it, and then, then they wheeled me to the ward in mm-hmm. a gurney or whatever we call them in this country. And, uh, and as soon as I got to the ward, <laughs> the people there said, what's this stuff on your back? It's plastic skin. They just they shouldn't have done that. That's that's going to take that. And so the rest of the time I was in hospital, they used to sort of it was like plasters being pulled off. They were all oh pulling the skin off. Uh, but that was just you know um, you know an unpleasant time. But uh, like all these things, actually more unpleasant for everybody else than it was for me because I didn't have to look at my back with its no. weeping skin. And the the only trouble is my teeth have caused endless trouble. I've had to um, you know had to have a crown put on it and. Mm. Uh, and then that got replaced, and it's been there's been endless troubles with my uh, teeth as a result. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask the important question. Um, yeah. uh, how were the fish and chips? <laughs> they, no, nobody got the fish and chips. No. And, that, and you're the only. Oh. You're, that's a good question because nobody's ever asked me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so they would have done my. Oh dear, what so. a waste, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> All these stories I know are really uh, interrelate because I was talking earlier about this football my grandparents in Scotland had sent me. And by the time I was about 11, my grandfather, then my grandmother died. And I had to deal with that because my mother was was ill. And she was still ill at the time of having this uh, accident. She had a problem with her heart, which is not mm. ideal if you've got a bad heart. No, the phone rings. I know you were expecting lunch, but... so she had to put up with that and then uh, now I'm thinking about it I think then later on I when I was I suppose more or less grown up sort of in my early 20s I used to ride around on a motorbike so I can see now with my sort of parents eye view of Mm. the world uh, how distressing it must have been that this (laughs) idiot son who hadn't necessarily developed too much in his early was now riding around on a motorbike. Yeah, you think you would have learned your lesson. But I, something I did when I was a barrister, I used to ride around on a bike because you could get to court here and there. It makes sense in London. Yes. It's so much quicker. But then, uh, you know, it's quite quick on the tube, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. My father used to cycle. My mother and father, I think, sort of courted by going on bicycle rides yes. out to the countryside. And my father... When we eventually moved out to the area that they used to go cycling to, which is probably the reason is why we moved there, oh, yes. every time we went down this very steep hill, my father would tell me that that's the hill that he'd crashed his bike on. Yeah. And apparently his brakes failed. And at the bottom was a very sharp turn, and he couldn't turn. So yeah. he hit the hedge and went over the hedge onto the uh, roof of a shed. Oh, that's unlucky. And uh, all he remembers is that the woman who lived in the house shouted to her husband, George! It's happened again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. So there we are. All right. I'm going to put that undamaged bicycle. Yes. It's it's so unfair. Yeah. I'm going to put that undamaged bicycle into the time capsule and we're going to lock it away and you'll never have to risk riding it again. And if you could find the jeans I was wearing, they were under. How you can have a 15-stitch wound in your knee? uh, (laughs) I have no idea. Through trousers, I, I don't know. No, I've only ever come off a bicycle or a motorbike once. I came off a moped, which is no sort of great shakes. But, um, yes, I was testing it out to see if I wanted to buy it. Mm. And it was quite late at night, and I had been drinking. Ah, yes. And I reached a roundabout, had no idea of how to control a moped or what speed I was doing, and I slid off it 
underneath a police car. Oh, wow. And the policeman got out and said, you all right, son? Come in. Oh, dear. No, that was nasty. Mm. And, of course, my trousers were completely torn, as was my leg. And he said, oh, that's just terrible. Oh, look at your bike. I said, well, it's it's not mine yet. What an idiot. Yeah, did you did you buy it or did you I did buy it, but I was done for driving without insurance or a license. Oh no. Yeah. Yes. My one time in court. Not a good <laughs> thing for a law student, I have to say. I eventually got rid of I one of my motorbiking days, I sold my last bike to my next door neighbor. He used mm-hmm. to help me fix it from time to time and he was fixing it and then he said, oh, I'd quite like to buy this. And I said, yeah, I'll think about it, because it was, you know, it was a cold winter. And then I was in a car, and he hurtled up to me very, very urgently and said, oh, I, 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 I want to buy a bike. And, and I said, okay, yeah, so I think, no, no, I, I want to buy it now. And uh, he produced the, the money in cash. And and uh, I could not quite work out why it was so necessary for him to buy. There must have been some reason he'd been stopped on it or he wasn't, and he had to acquire ownership of it to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. justify his insurance policy. I was like, so, OK, OK, I'll, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy. And I didn't think then that was me giving up motorcycling. I thought I'd get a better bike, but I never did. So That was it. That was it. That was the end of it. Well, that's probably why you're still here today. <laughs> I should think. <laughs> well, there we are, Clive. Thank you so much for talking to me on my time capsule. It's been lovely to talk to you. Well, thank thank you for having me. I hope I haven't rambled on too much. Well, I hope you have rambled on too much. (laughs) You can edit it down to five minutes. It might make it. (laughs) Five minutes? I'll be lucky. (laughs) (laughs) You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, but mostly my guest, Clive Anderson. In fact, You may have stopped listening to My Time Capsule. Unless you're a poor judge of comedy and like the occasional quirky outro that I do. Still, before that, I have to tell you that you can subscribe to this podcast to stream all episodes for free on Acast or your own favourite podcast provider. If you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate us and write a short review. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook for all the latest about My Time Capsule. You just search at MyTCPod or you can follow me at Fenton Stevens. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens and the music was by Pass the Peas Music. Thanks for listening, especially the very dear Roger Povey. And if you want a personal thank you, all you need to do is to retweet every post about my time capsule, like my mate Roger does. Thanks, Roger. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.